Due to the graphic nature of these events, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of anti-Semitism and racism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1940, 57-year-old Coco Chanel stared at the Paris streets through a car window. En route to the Hotel Ritz, the fashion designer didn't recognize her beloved city anymore. As her driver maneuvered through the roads, Chanel saw Nazi soldiers marching down the Champs-Élysées. They patrolled the French Parliament building, where an Adolf Hitler bust stood guard. Soon they passed the Eiffel Tower. Its banner read plainly, Germany everywhere victorious. The Paris where Chanel built her fashion empire was long gone, replaced by Nazi military occupation. And while the fighting caused even her famous boutique to close, Chanel still wanted to stay. Paris was still her city. She had every right to live and work there. Her driver pulled up to the Ritz. On the way up to her suite, Chanel passed other residents, members of the German high command, various friends of the Third Reich. As for Chanel, she was staying there as an honored guest of a high-ranking Nazi, who was also her lover. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the second installment in a new season of The Dark Side Of on fashion. Last week, we looked back at the industry's modern origins in the 19th century. This week, we're moving into the Nazi-tinged fashion of the World War II era and beyond. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we're delving into Coco Chanel and Hugo Boss. As we know them, these two brand names represent luxury and glamour. But beyond the fancy labels, both designers sided with the Nazis during World War II. Chanel and Boss forever stitched hate into their designs, and we've somehow managed to overlook it every day since. All in the name of fashion. Coming up, we'll explore Chanel and Boss's origins in the Nazi party. In the 1920s, Coco Chanel revolutionized French fashion with her sporty and chic designs. Unlike the tightly corseted gowns of the 1900s, her clothes emphasized comfort. Women flocked to buy her trademark little black dresses at her popular Parisian boutique. High society embraced Chanel's unique designs. And that was all she ever really wanted. She craved the approval of the affluent after growing up in abject poverty. Born Gabriella Bonaire Chanel in 1883, she grew up penniless in a small French town. When she was 12, her mother died 
and her father abandoned her and her sisters at a Catholic orphanage. The nuns there taught her how to sew. That simple skill would become her livelihood. In 1903, 20-year-old Chanel got a job as a seamstress. It was something to make ends meet while she worked towards her real dream, being a cabaret star. During her free time, she sang at a cafe called La Rotonda. She dazzled the crowd with her signature song, Who Has Seen Coco? Soon enough, the military men in the audience called her Coco. The nickname stuck. And one particular soldier wasn't just dazzled, he was smitten. Three years later, Chanel became his live-in mistress. But live-in didn't necessarily mean monogamous. She still had eyes for other affluent men, and a few of them helped finance her first hat shop and boutique. By 1920, it was now Chanel who was smitten. She'd fallen in love with Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich of Russia. The anti-communist exile had relocated to France after the communist Bolsheviks took over Russia. Pavlovich came to Paris when the Judeo-Bolshevism theory was peaking, which claimed Jews supported the Russian communist revolution. Rumors spread, all of them untrue, that Jewish people and the Bolsheviks wanted to take over all of Europe. But Chanel believed it was true, and so did Pavlovich's circle of friends, which included chemist and perfumer Ernest Beau. Chanel became friendly with the 39-year-old Moscow native who soon offered her the opportunity to make her own fragrance. Together, Chanel and Beau came up with a scent that would revolutionize the perfume industry, Chanel No. 5. It debuted in 1921 and quickly became the talk of Paris. Chanel knew the fragrance had the potential for worldwide success. She dreamed of expanding her company to the United States. She just didn't have the means to do it. Until, in a stroke of good luck, she met businessman Pierre Vertemer. The 37-year-old Chanel met with the Jewish businessman in late summer 1920. She likely knew about Vertemer's religion, but she put her anti-Semitism aside for the opportunity to expand her brand. Vertemer's family owned France's largest perfume company, Bourgeois. The brand mass-produced fragrances in a factory, then distributed them around the world. He was willing to do the same for Chanel because he was enamored with her. The two of them formed the corporation Les Parfums Chanel, which held rights to Number no. Five's formula and production. The fragrance would continue being sold under the Chanel name, but now they'd both own it. And not equally. Chanel was named the corporation's president, but she'd only received 10% ownership and 200 stock shares. Vertemer and his business partners owned the rest while financing production and distribution. At the time, though, it didn't seem like a bad deal to Chanel. She disliked paperwork and accounting. She much preferred to focus on her designs and the glamour of her newfound fame. Thanks to this agreement, the business responsibilities now belong to Vertemer. But as perfume sales shot up, Chanel was making money, sure, but the Vertemer family was making more. Her eponymous product was pulling in profits for other people. 
So she filed several lawsuits to regain control of her company. Chanel was at the beginning of a long battle. The Vertemers were seasoned businessmen. They'd made sure the contract was ironclad. And as the dispute intensified, so did Chanel's hatred of Jews. It was a sentiment that was growing all around Europe. In Germany, Nazism was on the rise, and designer Hugo Boss was on the verge of failure. After fighting in World War I, 38-year-old Boss founded his clothing company in 1923. His factory in Metzingen, Germany, employed about 20 seamstresses to make police and postal uniforms. His first big contract, though, was to produce brown shirts for the Nazi party. Boss was successful for a few years until the 1929 German recession. The clothing industry suffered, and by 1931, Boss was facing bankruptcy. He worked out a temporary deal with his creditors, but he knew he needed more regular clients to stay afloat, big contracts like the one from the Nazis. At the time, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party were growing in influence. They promised to create jobs and fix the economy, and they needed someone to make their uniforms. Boss was sold. He claimed he only joined the Nazi party to save his business, that it was all for the money. Even if that were true, it doesn't make the decision any better. But Boss's factory didn't produce Nazi uniforms until 1933, two years after he joined the party. Years later, the company admitted Boss's views did align with Hitler's. While he kept his opinions quiet, he was fully loyal to the Nazis. Loyalty to the Nazis seemed to be growing in all European cities, Paris especially. Chanel's own anti-Semitism was only encouraged by the society she associated with. Her friends were mostly conservative, anti-Semitic aristocrats. In June of 1940, Germany invaded France and the Nazi occupation of Paris began. Under German rule, food was rationed and a strict curfew was instituted. The city's once lively nightlife went dark and fashion was no longer a priority. Chanel had to close her boutique. Soon, Chanel was personally caught up in the fighting when Germans captured her nephew, André Palace, in battle. Palace, a 37-year-old French soldier, was the son of Chanel's older sister, Julia. Julia had died by suicide during Chanel's childhood, and Palace was among the only family Chanel had left. Now, he was being held in a German prisoner of war camp. Chanel sought advice from the French government in Vichy, but they couldn't help. Only German officials could secure his release. So Chanel returned to Nazi-occupied Paris with a new mission. She had to find a way to free her nephew. Instead of standing up against the Nazis, Chanel integrated herself into their new high society. The way she saw it, some of these affluent Nazi officers could help her nephew. That's likely how she met Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. His friends called him Spatz. It's unclear when or how Chanel met the 37-year-old Nazi senior officer, but by 1941, they were fully enamored with each other. 
They shared the same anti-Semitic beliefs. They both admired Hitler, and von Dinklage was a charming man with influential Nazi connections. Chanel realized the benefits of von Dinklage's company right away. She didn't have to abide by the rations or the curfew. She still attended glamorous parties, now among prominent Nazis. She could voice her anti-Semitic views with no opposition. Additionally, von Dinklage worked and lived at the lavish Hotel Ritz, the German high command headquarters. In no time at all, he arranged for Chanel to have a suite in the most luxurious wing among the friends of the Third Reich. Most importantly, Chanel hoped that von Dinklage's authority could release her nephew. But she needed to act fast. Palas had contracted tuberculosis in the camp. So von Dinklage connected her with the Abwehr, Germany's military intelligence agency. Abwehr officials proposed Chanel a deal. They'd help free Palas if, in return, she'd traveled to Madrid, Spain to gather information as a Nazi spy. With her options limited and her nephew's health rapidly deteriorating, Chanel accepted her first espionage assignment. Next, Coco Chanel's Nazi loyalties tip off the Allies. Hi, it's Kate. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, we all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new podcast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my dear friend, host Alastair Murden, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Desperate to free her ailing nephew from a POW camp, Coco Chanel took a dangerous gamble. In exchange for his release, she was going to help the Nazis as a spy. On August 5, 1941, the 58-year-old Chanel arrived in Madrid, Spain, under the guise of promoting her famous fragrance, Chanel No. 5. She needed to work quickly. Palas was suffering from tuberculosis. The conditions in German work camps were unhygienic and food was scarce. Millions of French soldiers were imprisoned and the Germans didn't let them stay idle. They were put to work for the Third Reich. For some, that meant working for German designer Hugo Boss. 
Like many German textile companies, Boss's factory used slave labor during the Nazi regime. In addition to at least 40 POWs, he also employed 140 imprisoned Eastern European women. One of them was a woman from Poland named Józefa Gisterek. During a visit home to Poland, Józefa was arrested by the Gestapo. She was beaten and sent to the Buchenwald concentration camp. When Boss realized she was missing, he spent 18 months searching for her. He finally tracked her down, had her released from the concentration camp, and returned to his factory. Boss thought he was doing something noble, but conditions in his factory were hardly ideal either. When Josefa started work again, the factory foreman humiliated her on a daily basis and worked her to the bone. Soon, she had a breakdown. After a three-month leave of absence, Josefa died by suicide. When Boss learned of her death, he paid for Josefa's funeral, but he still refused to do anything to speak out against the Nazis. Business was good, and he didn't want to endanger his profits. Josefa wasn't the only one to die. In total, four workers perished while working for Boss, and Coco Chanel desperately wanted her nephew to avoid that same fate. On August 13, 1941, Chanel went to a Madrid dinner party with her Nazi objective in mind. Spain was a neutral country in World War II, working closely with both British and German intelligence. But at the party, Chanel was anything but neutral. She spoke constantly about the war for three hours. She claimed that the Nazi party actually supported the British just not their prime minister, Winston Churchill. The Nazis were convinced that Churchill wanted to exterminate Germany. The other guests thought it was odd that the renowned fashion designer was rattling off complaints about Churchill. Chanel was famously close with the politician, having dated the Duke of Westminster in the 1920s. This sudden change of heart was a huge red flag, and one British diplomat reported it to the embassy. Despite that hiccup, the Germans declared Chanel's mission to be a success. She had proved she was a loyal Nazi agent. In the fall of 1941, her nephew André was released from the POW camp. Chanel realized just how much power and influence the Germans held in France. If the Nazis could release André, then perhaps they also had enough sway to help her regain control of her perfume company. With her boutique closed, it was Chanel's only source of income. The Jewish Vertimer family still owned the majority of the business that produced Chanel No. 5, and it was the Vertimers reaping the majority of the profits from the scent's worldwide success. Chanel felt she'd been duped into holding just a meager 10% of company ownership. For years, she'd been suing for her proper share with no success. But now, winning back control actually seemed possible. The Vertimers had fled to the United States when the Germans occupied France, and Chanel's lover, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, offered to help with her case. They planned to Aryanize Chanel's company, meaning they'd cut out the Vertimers. Full ownership would be transferred back to Chanel, all thanks to the Nazi regime. 
they recruited Nazi lawyer Dr. Kurt Blanke, whose specialty was seizing Jewish-owned businesses. He anticipated an easy transfer. Chanel could claim that the Vertemers had abandoned the company, forfeiting their share of the ownership. But Pierre Vertemer had planned for this. He knew his family would need to protect their assets from the Nazis. So before they left, he secretly handed over the company to his friend Falix Amiot, who wasn't Jewish. More than that, Amiot owned a mechanical engineering firm that produced French warplanes, which were admired by the Nazis. He secretly made airships for the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Amiot himself worked closely with the commander, who was Hitler's right-hand man. With those connections, Amiot was able to fight off Chanel's attorney and keep control of the company. And that was just the beginning of her troubles. By 1943, the Allied forces had made big strides against the Axis powers. The German army's morale was at an all-time low. And meanwhile, the Free French Resistance movement was gaining momentum. The resistance vowed to retake France from the Germans. Partnering with the Allied powers, they formed an army, a national council, and an intelligence agency. Free French spies targeted Nazi collaborators like Chanel and high-ranking officers like von Dinklage. Additionally, British intelligence was tracking the duo more closely than ever. If the Allies won, Chanel and von Dinklage would be considered criminals. Soon, Nazi officials advised von Dinklage to leave Paris. He'd worked for German intelligence in Turkey, a neutral country. There, he could lay low away from the war and away from Chanel. With the walls closing in, Chanel switched her alliances, not out of principle, but for the sake of clearing her name. Together, she and von Dinklage came up with a plan to align with the Allies, Operation Model Hat. It was named for Chanel's glamorous headwear. Chanel wanted to meet with her old friend, Winston Churchill, to broker peace talks between the British and Germans. But because of the tense political climate, she couldn't bring that up right away. So first, she would use their mutual friend, British-Italian socialite Vera Lombardi, as bait. In a letter, Chanel requested a meeting with Churchill to discuss Lombardi's situation. Fascist Italian police suspected her of being a British informer and had even imprisoned her for a week. Oddly enough, it was the German police that stepped in to free her. If Churchill agreed to meet to discuss Lombardi's well-being, Chanel could casually drop the idea of negotiating with the Germans. She'd tell Churchill that many Nazi officers wanted to denounce Hitler and end the war. The plan was crazy enough to work. When von Dinklage pitched her idea to the Abwehr, they agreed to finance it. At this point, they were willing to try anything to halt the bloodshed, including using a fashion designer to lure in the British Prime Minister. Operation Model Hat was a go. Chanel, Lombardi, and von Dinklage traveled to Madrid in late December of 1943. Churchill was scheduled to visit the city at the same time. When Lombardi boarded the train, she thought Chanel just needed her help opening a business in Madrid. 
Chanel didn't tell her about the real reason for the trip until they were already on the way there. Lombardi was appalled, but she kept quiet. At least until they reached the embassy. Once they were there, Lombardi denounced Chanel and von Dinklage as Nazi spies. The couple denied the accusation. Chanel even gave the letter to Churchill to the British ambassador herself. But there was one more problem. Churchill never made it to Spain. He'd caught pneumonia several weeks earlier and secretly flew to Tunisia to recover. There would be no meeting, no negotiations, no peace. Chanel's mission was a failure. Six months later, the Allies invaded Normandy. It was the beginning of the end for the Nazis and for Chanel. Next, Coco Chanel and Hugo Boss face criminal charges. Now back to the story. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces invaded Normandy, France. In the coming weeks, they advanced into Paris. The Allies were making a comeback, and 60-year-old Coco Chanel was panicking. She had correctly assumed that her Nazi espionage had earned her a spot on the Free French's enemy list. If the Allies won, she'd be considered a war criminal. Meanwhile, her boyfriend, Nazi senior officer Hans Gunther von Dinklage, was worried for himself. After burning his files in August of 1944, von Dinklage fled back to Germany. Abandoned by her lover, Chanel moved into the apartment above her boutique. From her window, she watched ash collect on the streets from the Allied bombs. By August 25th, the city was finally back under French control. The French and Allied forces ripped down Nazi signs in the streets. They captured 12,000 German troops and kept them in camps. They rounded up civilian Nazi collaborators as well. Some were shot on sight. This included the women who cavorted with Nazis. They were called horizontal collaborators. As a form of public humiliation, the French and Allied troops stripped the women nude and shaved their heads in the street. Wanting to avoid this fate, Chanel tried to get rid of any proof of her Nazism, including witnesses. Chanel contacted a former lover who had joined the Free French. She gave him the name of a Nazi spy she had worked with in Paris, Baron Louis de Vaufreeland. She hoped if de Vaufreeland disappeared, so would evidence of her espionage. When the French Forces of Interior, or the FFI, arrested Dover Freeland, Chanel thought she was safe. But she was wrong. The FFI had already learned about Chanel's espionage from an unlikely source, von Dinklage's ex-wife, Maximiliana von Schoenbeck. Her nickname was Katzi. Katzi was a half-Jewish Nazi spy and black market dealer. She and von Dinklage had divorced before the war, but Katzi worked as a German intelligence agent in Paris right alongside her ex. While von Dinklage was romancing Chanel, he was also visiting his ex-wife frequently. Katzi had turned herself into the FFI, hoping that being honest would protect her from punishment. But it didn't. And to secure her own release, 
she gave up the names of everyone she worked with, including her ex-husband and his lover, Coco Chanel. With this intel, the FFI arrested Chanel in September of 1944. During her interrogation, though, Chanel realized something about the questions. The FFI didn't seem to know anything concrete about her Nazi espionage. They had no record of either of her trips to Madrid. They didn't know about the Churchill letter either. After a few hours, the FFI released her. Chanel returned home relieved. She had a feeling someone in particular had saved her. Churchill. There's no evidence that the prime minister intervened, but Churchill's fondness for Chanel in the 1920s was well documented. But Chanel's former British lover, the Duke of Westminster, may have actually been the one behind her release. When she arrived home, an unknown man showed up with a message from the Duke. Don't lose a minute. Get out of Paris. Chanel took the warning seriously. Later that day, she left for Switzerland, where she reunited with von Dinklage. But their relationship was now rife with suspicion. Chanel loved him, but wondered if he'd crack under interrogation. Just how much would he reveal about her Nazism? It was a legitimate concern. While Chanel was hiding in Switzerland, World War II ended in 1945. Allied forces occupied Germany, and there was an extensive investigation for anyone who had been associated with the Nazi party. Chanel continued to face Nazi suspicions until the end of the decade. However, she never faced charges for war crimes and always denied her involvement. The same goes for Hugo Boss. The Allies initially classified him as the second highest class of offender, Belastita. A year later, he was reclassified as a follower, or Mitläufer. At this level, the Allies didn't charge him with any war crimes. He was never punished for anything. In the post-war period, Boss's factories switched gears, making French Army and Red Cross uniforms. Perhaps he sought redemption. More likely, he was once again chasing the money wherever it was, regardless of his principles. Boss died in 1948 at the age of 63, but his company lived on. Over time, his Nazism faded into the background, as did Chanel's. In the early 1950s, Chanel grew tired of hiding in Switzerland. By then, most of the Nazi officials she'd worked with had died in prison. By fall of 1953, the 70-year-old designer thought it would be safe to make a comeback. In a letter to Harper's Bazaar editor, Carmel Snow, she wrote, I thought it would be fun to work again. You know, I might one day create a new style adapted to today's living. Chanel went back to Paris and even rehired some of her old staff. They worked tirelessly on about 100 new pieces, including dresses and blouses. Chanel called it a collection made by a woman with love. Her new designs debuted on February 5, 1954, and they flopped. The French press hated her collection. On the surface, the critics called her clothes outdated, but beneath the surface, they were hesitant to praise Chanel 
because they knew she was pro-Nazi. However, Americans didn't share the same qualms. The U.S. editions of Vogue and Life magazine praised Chanel's designs with nary a mention of her Nazism. By the summer, France hopped on the bandwagon too and forgot about her crimes. French headlines declared that Chanel is once again Chanel. The designers' later collections won similar praise. By the 1960s, Hollywood stars like Audrey Hepburn and Grace Kelly wore Chanel designs. Even First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy was wearing a pink Chanel suit when her husband was assassinated in Dallas. It's stunning to think an American hero was murdered next to his wife, who was wearing a suit designed by a Nazi spy. But despite the strange backstory, the blood-covered wool suit became a symbol of Jackie's bravery in the face of tragedy. As time went on, the Chanel brand only grew around the world, especially in the United States. The brand is still widely in demand without any consideration for its founder's past. Walk into the purse section of any department store. A Chanel handbag will cost at least $1,000, if not more. If you prefer a vintage version, eBay has over 24,000 listings for Chanel purses, not that those are necessarily cheaper. Meanwhile, suits from Hugo Boss remain one of the black tie gold standards for men. The average ensemble costs nearly $1,000. Distracted by fashion, we are ready to open our wallets for these items like their histories don't matter, like they never even happened. We tell ourselves that sometimes bad people produce good things we love that it's fine to enjoy those things if we just don't think about it. But no matter how beautiful something is, that doesn't change the reality of its sordid origins. The beauty only conceals it. Thanks for listening. For more information on Coco Chanel, amongst the many sources we used, we found Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War by Hal Vaughn, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, we'll be back with The Dark Side of Denim. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. Before we go, I hope you remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify 
or wherever you get your podcasts.